0: Welcome to the CultureWise Podcast, where God's good news meets the Latter-day Saints with wisdom and grace. Here we aim to discuss topics relating to how followers of Jesus can more effectively reach Latter-day Saints in their relational networks. For more information about this podcast, check out our pilot episode titled, What Is This Podcast About? My name is Daniel Schugert, and I am joined today by Ross Anderson. In today's episode, we want to discuss contextualization. Now, the message of the gospel is universal for all people in all cultures, but the Bible encourages us to adapt how we communicate this never-changing gospel message to the unique culture of our audience. Ross, how do you describe what contextualization actually is? Yeah,
1: it's kind of a big word, but you know, you can see at the heart of the word is the, is the idea of a context, that every uh, time that we communicate the gospel, we're doing so within a particular context. It's never abstracted, right? It's always within the context of what? Maybe a relationship or, um, you know, a particular geographical setting. But in what we're talking about here today is in the context of a particular culture and everything that culture is. And so culture, you know, culture is a complex reality that we all live in. We all live in within the boundaries of our own culture and subcultures. And so we're saying, how do we, how do we communicate the gospel in ways that take that cultural context into account? Since we understand that people are not just um, abstract beings, that, that, that they do exist embedded in culture. So we're going to try to figure out how to talk about that in ways that make sense, that are faithful to the gospel on one hand, but make sense to the hearer in their particular context on the other hand.
0: Now, yeah, I think it's helpful to recognize that the the context can be pretty scalable. As you mentioned, it could be on on an individual relationship. How does this individual relationship demand I change the way that I communicate the gospel, or how might... Uh, a, uh, an, a state or how might a nation differ in some of these areas?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good insight to realize that we're not just talking about like, oh, and a big picture like America. Mm-hmm. We realize there's a million different contexts within a cultural context. And then, you know, that goes drills all the way down to individual contexts, like you said. So in your experience talking to people, what are some of the individual-type contexts that come into play in some of the conversations that you've had?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I've, I've engaged with a lot of different types of people, and some people have a very little understanding of Christianity, have a very little understanding of the Bible or who Jesus is. Other people have a lot of understanding um, they've maybe gone to a, a Catholic school when they were growing up, and, and so they they have a lot more familiarity with the stories or the person of Jesus. Uh, and and there are some people that think they have a lot of familiarity, but maybe have some wrong ideas, or or they'll they'll use words that they know they've learned, uh, but maybe use them in a different way. Like I had a conversation with someone describing faith, and he. He was describing faith using language of a previous religious experience that he had, and and I had to share with him, well, maybe that's, maybe that's not actually the way that the Bible describes faith. And so those are some very very minute details that might influence the way I communicate the gospel to individuals. Um, but also on a on a bigger scale, it's helpful to recognize that uh, here in the United States. Well, we've we've been pretty accustomed to the Christian religion, um, maybe some distortions of it as well. Uh, but in in other parts around the world, there's been no familiarity. They've never heard the gospel, or they've never had the Bible even translated into their own language. And so the the baseline of where where do you start the spiritual conversation mm-hmm. uh, has to change.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And so l- let's. Um, Maybe we could define it a little more specifically than kind of a technical definition of what we're talking about, because we said you said in the opener that you know the gospel doesn't change. Um, you know, it's timeless. It's transcultural. It's not like the gospel is different for people in this culture versus that culture, um, because humanity has just one creator. There's just one origin of the of the human race. There's just one central event that God did in in history when Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead. That's a, That applies to all humans, totally everywhere. But again, our premise today is that how we communicate that gospel is going to vary based on the cultural context. So here's the definition that I'm using when we talk about these things, that contextualization is simply presenting the unchanging truths of the gospel in a way that is intelligible within the unique and changing contexts of a particular culture and worldview. Again, the essential message is the same, but it's going to speak to different cultures in different ways. Now, can it go
0: too far? Can you, can you change so much about the delivery of the message that it actually compromises the message itself?
1: Yeah, that's always a, a fine line. To try to find the place where you have adapted your methodology to the to the culture around you, and some some of that adaptation of the methodology uh, might include adaptation of like what particular words you choose to use and and stories that you choose to tell. And so, anytime that you're talking about communication, it is possible to to go too far, and that's uh, scholars call that syncretism. And so syncretism is when is when you blend in the worldview, the values, the practices of the host culture, the target culture, and those get blended, kind of mixed in um, with the biblical worldview, with biblical values, with biblical practices. So you have these different levels, worldview, values, practices, right? And, and so when you start to blend those, um, then that can become a problem, Um that can undermine the gospel. It could undermine, you know, so you have one hand the gospel, and the other hand you have then, what's the nature of the church? The nature of God's work in um, his people corporately, and both of those can be undermined by syncretism, if we're not careful about how... And here's the thing that, so some people, they're so concerned about syncretism that they don't contextualize. Hmm. And some people are so concerned to contextualize that they'll go way too far with it in, in order to try to reach people or convince people, but of what, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So contextualization, syncretism are kind of poles on, it can be looked at at poles on a continuum. And there's some place and there's a sweet spot somewhere in there, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see how this would demand... Uh,
0: at least somewhat of a, of a familiarity with, but ho- hopefully a, a good understanding of the culture in the context that you're engaging in, so that you can recognize what are, what are some ways that I can contextualize the message and keep the gospel in purity uh, and, and maintain the culture intact, and in what ways might some aspects of the culture that might be more religiously prescriptive Those aspects of the culture might need to be left out or even uh, removed in order for the the integrity of the gospel to be remained intact.
1: Right, and the the flip side of that it's really important. The flip side of that is also um, having a really good grasp of the gospel. Mm, You know, if we if we have a great grasp of the culture, we can understand, think through how to how to make the adaptations. But if we have a really good grasp of the gospel, then we also can understand. Oh. that's essential to the gospel message. We can't leave that out or we can't, um, you know change that particular concept.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's look at a couple of specific examples. I know the Bible has a few examples of this practice contextualization. What are they?
1: Well, I think I think the example, the best example, the most clear example is the Apostle Paul. Um, you know, so he's the one who says, in um, Second Corinthians chapter nine, he says, "I become all things to all men in order to um, save some." Hmm, yeah, and he gives some examples, and I think that he helps us understand the the boundaries of contextualization there because he says, "Like, like uh, to the Jew, I become a, as one who's under the law, mm-hmm. but I'm not under the law." He says, "To the Gentile, I you know I become as one who's not under the law, but I am under the law of Christ." So he's saying, you know, to the non-Jewish person, he's saying, I'm not going to try to um, impose the, the Jewish law upon them, the law of Moses. But he said, at the same time, I'm not going to just become, you know, anything goes with mm-hmm. some kind of libertinism or license. And so he says, I'm going to adapt myself to the situation in my message. And so, so that's the baseline. And then he goes, you know, you see it in his practice. And what I like to do is compare three different scenarios in the book of Acts um, to show that in each different scenario, there are, each one is a different cultural context and how Paul, we can see how he um, frames the gospel in different ways in those three different settings.
0: Yeah, so what are, what are some of these different places that Paul went to uh, how can we understand their culture, and what did that influence about the way he engaged the people there?
1: Yeah, let's take a look at the three. The first one is um, Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 16, um, and it's a lo- it's a lengthy passage, but in Pisidian Antioch, Paul first goes to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, and... Um, the audience that he's speaking to, then, so he has the synagogue serf- service. They invite him as a as a guest to to make some comments, apparently on the whatever the Torah reading was was for the day. And so his audience is these people who have come to synagogue. So they're faithful uh, Jewish uh, people, believers in Judaism, in in that setting. And so what Paul did is, you read in Acts chapter thirteen, he starts with the Jewish scriptures. He starts with the the promises and prophecies of the Messiah. So he's going from David and he's saying, look, David, you you guys understand this this messianic uh, son of David who's supposed to come, this this greater future king who's supposed to come. And he says, look, if you understand those prophecies, let me tell you that those are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the Messiah. And so he made his case that, you know, based on their common understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. So so that's, that's number one. The faithful Jewish audience, he starts with ideas that they understood, that, that were common to them, that made sense to them, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And I notice he even takes quite a while to describe the history of the Jewish nation uh, almost as if to give himself credibility to say, look, I I am Jewish. This is my people. This is my heritage. It's not something that I've learned in a textbook. This is my culture. And and so he's placing himself very closely to the people that he's engaging with.
1: That's a great observation. And part of that, I mean, is I think there's an understanding as we think about cultural contexts that part of that culture is going to be who is credible and who isn't.
0: Mm-hmm. What voices
1: are credible in the in the religious or spiritual um, setting of that culture, and how how is a person credible, and and what kinds of people are considered to be non credible, and so that's a, g- a great takeaway in that setting. And then he goes um, in the next chapter, in chapter fourteen, he goes to the town of Lystra, and in starting in verse eight through verse eighteen, and in Lystra. It's a different setting. It's a fairly rural setting um, and it's an agricultural setting. And so these these people are um, these are these are sort of rural pagans and um, and with that audience, he did not start with the Jewish scriptures. They would have had no understanding or any kind of familiarity with the Jewish scriptures. Mm-hmm. So he starts with the general, goodness of God in creation he's saying there's this God that he's the one who provides sunshine that he gives rain that he causes the crops to grow and um, and you can see he's moving toward he's he meets them at the place of their understanding he's moving toward um, drawing connecting the dots to Jesus but he never gets a chance to do that because <laughs> yeah. opposition arises and the the his message is cut short um, by a Basically, a crowd riots and, and they, get, um, they, they were attacked and so forth. So, but you can see that he starts with a really different starting point than the starting point that he did in a different setting in Acts chapter 13.
0: Yeah, he begins with more of a perspective of glorify the God that you ought to have known you ought to have known this creator who sustains all things and provides blessing worship him is is where he begins mm-hmm, yeah. rather than just jumping into there's a guy who died and was raised to life worship him
1: right yeah that's right you can see you, you, and it makes total sense in terms of their understanding you have he had to build a bridge of conceptually to where they were from where they were to where he wanted them to go and so yeah, so that's it's really wise that he's able to discern uh, where to start building that bridge. Mm-hmm. And then the third one that's a different audience is in Acts chapter 17. And so um, we see him in Acts chapter 17, he's arrived at Athens. And Athens is a cosmopolitan urban center. Um, and so the setting there in Acts 17, starting in verse thir- uh, 16 it's a, a sophisticated urban type of paganism. So it's really different from the rural paganism of Lystra, very different from the Jewish setting um, in the synagogue. Mm-hmm. And so in this urban paganism where you know they they were really, these different schools of philosophy that arose in Athens and the Greek world had different perspectives on the nature of the gods and, and, and so forth. And so they kind of had uh, anything you wanted in terms of the, the spiritual pantheon hmm. was available. But he started with their own spirituality. And, um, he, you know, they're covering all their bases. So he sees a, a monument to an unknown god. So they're like, uh, I hope we didn't leave anybody out, so let's just throw this one up here too. Um, but he started with with that and argued, say, hey, let me tell you about this unknown God. And so again, um, he starts with their philosophical approach, with their belief system, and he began to make a case for that God to be the one true creator. He quotes from their own authorities a couple places where he quotes from their writers, their thinkers, and... Ultimately, he directed that conversation toward the person of Jesus and uh, the role that Jesus has appointed by this one true creator, God, and and his um, resurrection from the dead.
0: Mm -hmm. And even before he began engaging in that specific capacity, but in that same town, Athens, he was being accused, in, in verse 18, he was being accused of proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. And so that that was really a, a hallmark of his message everywhere he went. I, I saw that in Pisidian Antioch. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I think he would have gotten there in Lystra. I think so too. Yeah. Uh, and he's getting here in Athens. That's what he's being accused of: is focusing on Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. So that that's one stark commonality between some mm-hmm. of these stories. But what other things do you see? Are are threads that go throughout all of his gospel presentations?
1: Well, yeah, we, we've, we've kind of touched on some of this, that he communicated in a way that's appropriate to the cultural audience. It wasn't the same for every group. In terms of the format and the approach wasn't the same for every audience. Mm-hmm. He took into account what people already understood or how they already thought, even if it was incorrect. He didn't start by telling mm-hmm. them where they were incorrect. Yeah. He started with where they're at, and, and he had to uh, move them toward Jesus, and so he used different analogies that made sense to them in their setting, but he always ended up with Jesus. He's always moving toward Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that over and over again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's proclaiming the, proclaiming the gospel, but he didn't always start there. He wanted to, again, kind of connect the dots for them toward what probably was a very new idea or a foreign idea to most of them, and so it, he had to connect the dots.
0: Mm-hmm and there's an invitation in in each of them mm-hmm. to to repent or to turn mm-hmm. even even in the one where his, his speech was cut short he was able to say turn from these vain things to the living god and so in in each case there's the gospel presentation and even an invitation what what should we do with this new information that we're receiving
1: yeah that's a great point because it always it's not it's never just um abstract mm-hmm. again and and He's making an invitation that's that makes sense in that setting, you know, and makes sense in terms of where their starting points were. He affirmed them in a sense as a way of making common ground, but then he's moving toward, hey, this is, here's an ultimate truth that you're going to have to reckon with, mm-hmm. and that means you're going to have to reconsider the things that you've thought were true in light of this person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great observation.
0: So how then can we apply some of these concepts in, in our modern day? I'm sure it's being done uh, in missionary circles all around the world and even locally. W- what are some of these efforts that have been done uh, to contextualize locally?
1: Yeah. Um, first, I, I just want a, a bigger picture um, application is that it really helps us if we're going to communicate the gospel to people, you know, which I, I, you know, I applaud anybody who's willing to fulfill the Great Commission. Who's willing to take on, you know, Jesus said, "You'll be my witnesses." Mm. Um, so, yay, that's awesome. But if we're going to do it, that we, I think, we have to be aware of our own culture, um, so that we don't mistake our own cultural values and practices for the gospel. Yeah. And so, especially as, so in America, for example, where C- cultural Christianity was a given for a long time. Hmm. Um, and, and like you said, many people have this at least you know, some kind of knowledge of the basic ideas of Christianity. That's probably dwindling, but it, it varies from place to place. But when Christianity was the norm for so long, then I think it I think a lot of things that got got wrapped up in the concept of Christianity in our country that probably weren't necessarily the gospel or Christian or even Christian there's mm-hmm. cultural elements in there and so like early missionaries to Africa for example they would um, they would build Western ch- style church buildings and they would demand uh, or expect the converts to dress in European style mm. clothing yeah and so that, that's an example where they were not maybe aware of their own culture and and be able to sort out, the difference between the gospel and just sort of my church culture what my expectations have been with respect to you know all kinds of practices and all kinds of important things so so we want to first of all just be aware of our own culture that the the bible not culture is always the highest authority yeah and and uh, just because this is how i learned how to do it doesn't necessarily mean that that's a biblical approach. but So that's kind of a general background idea um, before we actually talk about maybe some of the um, applications that we have in mind. Mm -hmm. Maybe you've observed that, I don't know, in some of your conversations.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. I I think that in a place where one grows up as a follower of Jesus, or at least with that strong influence in their life, uh, even the cultural components that are modeled can appear to be Jesus's instruction. Mm-hmm. And so it can be far too easy to fall into the trap of o- obeying your traditions uh, and and not actually differentiating those from what are the core essential components of the gospel and Christian life. And then often we impose those even unwittingly on, mm-hmm. on those around us. So even mm-hmm. on the individual level, maybe I've connected with God in a certain way. And so even though another friend of mine is still within my United States cultural context or even Utah cultural context, that I I may be imposing some of my expectations based on my personal culture, my family's culture onto them and Mm -hmm. expecting they function and act and relate to Jesus uh, and believe some things about the gospel that maybe are more cultural to my family.
1: Yeah, that's a great illustration about how that could really operate on an individual basis as well as a as a larger cultural basis, yeah. So I think the most obvious example of contextualization is when, when the gospel has gone out around the world that that Christians have been willing to to translate the Bible or translate the message into the language of the recipients. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, because that's part of their culture, part of the cultural context is the language people speak. And so, I mean, I could go to... France and and share the gospel in English, and at this point in America, in, in a world culture, a lot of people would understand it, but it's not their heart language. I could go to maybe um, some remote place in Asia or Africa and share the gospel in English, and not a single person would have any idea what I'm talking about <laughs> because yeah. I haven't contextualized. The gospel by translating it into a language that people can understand. That's the simplest thing. Now we're in we're we're in America and we're in Utah. There's a people speak English, but but there's a different kind of language barrier. The words don't always mean the same things. And you hmm. brought that up earlier. How um, religious words can be used differently, and so we have to be aware of um, how we we might use common words that might be heard very, very differently from what we intend to, to say.
0: Yeah, one way that I've tried to put that into practice is is as I'm sharing with someone who is a Latter-day Saint, I, I often try to think of avoiding words that uh, are, are biblical words not commonly used in an everyday language. And so I'll try to I'll try to use synonyms or describing the word in a way that actually gets at the heart of the word and the purpose and meaning of the word, not just using the word which has value in its being sim- simple and and definitive, but its definition may be disputed between me and the person I'm sharing with.
1: Yeah, that's really a great. Give me an example of just maybe one example of um, of what you mean by that.
0: Yeah, so one very obvious one is the word propitiation. Uh, That's a biblical word, so it's it's a good word and it has a very clear, neat definition, but that doesn't mean it's well understood by by the everyday person. And and maybe I don't even understand all its complexities <laughs> personally. Right. So I, I just avoid using the word. I may use it wrong. It may be heard wrong. But how can I explain the purpose behind the word and the way it actually functions mm-hmm. in the biblical text, describing it rather than just using it?
1: Yeah, great point.
0: But even a word like um, mercy, mercy, um, it, it is commonly used in our language, but it has a lot of different uses. Oh Lord, have mercy on me is is not an expression that is actually calling for Jesus's mercy. Right. right. Uh, and so, if I'm going to use the word mercy in a conversation, I, I might I might either avoid the word altogether and just use synonyms, or I'll use the word and describe what I mean
1: by mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that's a great that's a great insight because you're practicing contextualization when you do that. Mm-hmm. Given. Um, what people might understand. I mean, we, we, you can look back historically and see examples of it um, in missionary life and missionary history. For example, um, Hudson Taylor, uh, from the mid-1800s, became a missionary to China. Now, before him, all of the mission work in China had been on the coast because it was associated with trade, with hmm. Europe and so forth. But Hudson Taylor pushed to the interior, um, and, and what he did that was radical, radically different was he accept, he adopted Chinese style of dress and Chinese you know style of I mean he wore his hair the way that Chinese people would wear their hair, men would wear their hair. He adopted Chinese styles of instruction, um, of ways of interacting, and so forth. So he's so he's really the first in in Asia that really put into practice the whole idea of contextualization Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, and and then in the islamic world nowadays the word christian has a very negative connotation right because of the crusades and 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 um, even because of um you know uh, european and american culture secular culture in the islamic eyes is associated with quote Christian yeah. in a big yeah. br- in a broad sense, but it's also seen as a negative because secularization has led to um, all kinds of values that are not um, appreciated in the Islamic world, um, what they would call you know excesses and immoralities and so forth are associated with that idea of Christian. And so people now who are working in the Islamic world will call themselves followers of Esau which is the Islamic Hmm. word for a name for Jesus. So I'm a follower of Isa. I wouldn't say I'm a Christian because that would create all kinds of baggage Mm. immediately in the person's mind.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure both of those examples from uh, adopting Chinese dress and customs and ways, uh, also changing the name of my religion to uh, followers of Isa, I'm sure both of those would receive some criticism Mm -hmm. by certain people around the world. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That Definitely. And, you know, for example, in the Islamic world, um, there's a big question about how far—we talked about syncretism and contextualization—there's a big question about how far um, you go. And so there's a whole movement in missionary work in in the Islamic world um, to contextualize to the point where people who come to follow Jesus— you know, don't necessarily, they still worship in a mosque, they still worship hmm. on Friday, and some of the typical things that are characteristic of Islamic culture. And so the debate is, uh, is that syncretism, or hmm. is it just sound contextualization? And so some of the criticism is um, driven by a desire not to syncretize. Some mm-hmm. of the criticism has been driven simply by, oh, that's not the way we've always done it, and that's different, and we don't get it, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: So then, what about what about locally here in Utah and among Latter Day Saints? How can how can we contextualize the gospel message and even regular Christian practices given our context?
1: Yeah, that's that's really what we're driving to here, and that. So, thanks for bringing that up. Um, I'll give I'll give an example. We want to think about just. There's key questions, and even identifying the questions Hmm. is part of thinking contextually. So what are the right questions to be asking? Um, And then from there, then identifying what methodologies or different approaches are going to make sense in light of that. So for example, a few years ago, um, there was a group of pastors that wanted to bring a prominent national evangelist to Salt Lake City to do a big event in the uh, uh, arena, a big basketball arena event, you know, where, you know, mass evangelism at its best, where you invite all these people, everyone invites their friends, you have big um, promoted through media, billboards, et cetera, draw a crowd and use, and the gifted evangelist who has, you know, communication gifts, then shares the gospel, and people come down and make a decision for Christ, and they're followed up by counselors. It's a model that has been prominent in America for generations and hmm. probably best popularized yeah. by Billy Graham. And so so the uh, the pitch was to bring in this, quote, crusade, this evangelistic crusade at this meeting, and it just didn't set right with me. And so um, I got up in, in the meeting and and like spoke in opposition to it, really. Not because I'm against evangelism by by far, but I thought, you know, given the fact that this event would cost half a million dollars and um, it it didn't make sense in our culture, it wasn't going to have the intended effects, it wasn't going to have the same effects that it might have in the South or in places where there's more of a, a Christian understanding, a basis... Um, it's just an un- unfamiliar approach in Utah because, for example, it doesn't take into account um, normal ways that LDS people gather. You know, they don't have a precedent for saying we're going to go to an arena to hear a speaker. and then, and, and the, the only precedent is twice a year, at general conference mm-hmm. there there there'll be an arena sized crowd maybe 20,000 20, 15-20,000 people that gather but but it's a different setting a different field there's not going to have upbeat music they're they're not going to have um, you know this this kind of communication and so it misses the cultural mark on a, on a lot of ways but most LDS people don't go to general conference it's mm-hmm. a hard ticket to get and they watch it on TV um, and, and most of their daily life experience revolves around uh, the ward, their local ward, and they go to sacrament meeting on Sunday, and it's about 150 people there, and, and so it's a different kind of setting that they don't have any analogy in their life to, to relate to. So why would I go to that? And then, you know, it doesn't take into account, for example, how Latter-day Saint people make spiritual decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, they, Latter-day Saints make spiritual decisions alone— Typically, in private, um, they might be wrestling in prayer. Um, they might be, you know, Im- immersed in their scriptures um, and grappling with the issues that they're facing. Um, whether it's seeking a testimony or whatever it might be, they don't make. There's no precedent in LDS culture for making a public kind of decision where you walk forward and you declare it, you know, in front of the the whole crowd and um, And so that's very very foreign, and and even if they came to the meeting, you know there'd be a big cultural barrier to, um, you know, uh, making a decision or or proclaiming a decision in that manner. So there's a lot of things, and I could go into even more detail, but that's plenty on Mm -hmm. that to give an illustration of how, um, you know. I said, let's evaluate, before we take any particular tool out of the toolbox, yeah, yeah. let's make sure that's the right tool for the job. And, and my point was, I didn't really think that a mass evangelism-type crusade was the right tool for the job. If we wanted to spend half a million dollars, let's spend it a different way mm-hmm. that would make more sense in our culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's valuable to recognize even in that what is the way that Latter-day Saints make spiritual decisions and it's, it's primarily rooted as I understand it in the story of the the first vision that Joseph Smith was was praying in a private place. Right, exactly. And he was personally mm-hmm. seeking the Lord on on these tough questions of life and asking for wisdom. And it was through a vision in a solitary place that Mm -hmm. he received some of these answers. Mm -hmm. And then there was this solitary place that reoccurred several times throughout the Mm -hmm. story. And so that is often the invitation from missionaries to me. uh, And that's often the expectation is that in the quiet place, humbly seeking the Lord, that he's going to reveal himself to me. Mm-hmm. And so there's not an expectation as much that um, I, I might experience Jesus in a, a loud environment right. um, where there's a lot going on, where there's many different voices confusing the waters. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's very different from their cultural expectation of hearing from
1: God. Right, exactly. And, and there's some, a number of so many layers of this. For example, their their value of the um, the mood of reverence. Yeah, and so um, a big event in an arena with a loud band playing, you know, um, an energetic music doesn't feel reverent to them, and so it's not respectful toward God. So that again, that would be off putting, in some ways. So you know, um, those are the kind of factors that we want to think about and and. You know, you're really correct to root that in in the LDS cultural history. Mm-hmm. That there's a precedent, and there's reasons why people think. And I think a related one is um, how do the LDS people try to convince people to join their church? How do they what? How do they go about sharing their gospel? Well, they do it. Um, Basically, through their missionaries, there's pairs of missionaries that go out, and if you're a local member, then your job is to make friends with your neighbors and stuff like that, and introduce them to the missionaries. Nobody expects you to take them through the the five, you know, uh, missionary lessons, but you're going to introduce them to and connect them with the missionaries, hand them off, and the missionaries are going to do that, um, and they have a certain pattern and so forth. So. My thought was, look, if we wanted to spend all that money, maybe a more effective way to do it would be to to raise up and train and 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 fund some people who are just available like that. Um, that Christians who have a relationship with LDS person could, you know, kind of help to um, match make with these missionaries and stay with them and p- be part of the process mm-hmm. and and let the pros, quote-unquote, you know, because I don't know. I don't know if that's really feasible or not, but it it was a thought in along the lines of trying to think contextually about how people make spiritual decisions and how this culture shares their message, um, their gospel message.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's the call for each one of us to recognize that culture is constantly changing, both across time and across geography and, and other um, cultural factors like rural and urban uh, upbringing. And so as these changes are taking place, the the way that we've contextualized in the past may not be the best way to contextualize in the future. And so some of these things that that I know your church has done or, or you've done personally, um, they They may have been great in their time, but they may or may not be so great in the mm-hmm. future. what What are some of those things that you or your church has done in the past?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, those this is a great point. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is to try to help hear from some newer voices and some people who are thinking this through. and And my encouragement is we want to equip, the, the, the Christian church and individuals who are following Jesus in an LDS context to think this through yeah. f- in a fresh way, because so, it's not the 90s anymore, right? So to think it through. But I think there's, at this point, there's still some things that make sense that we have done. Um, for example, we've chosen, and other churches in Utah have chosen, not to take a public offering in worship, to pass the plate, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why is because in the LDS context, um, they have a stereotype of Christian pastors and Christian churches that were just in it for the money. And that's they, they don't practice that themselves, and so they're going, when it happens, they don't, they don't know what it means, or um, they just give their offering to the bishop, or they mail it in, or, or probably now, like everybody, they probably give electronically. Um, and so when we pass the offering around. Um, that that practice is not mandated scripturally. What is mandated scripturally is to give, um, but the per- particular practice is really a cultural practice. They say we don't have to do it um, in a way that's going to create red flags for people. So that that's one of them. Uh, making children's ministry a priority in Utah is like because there's so many kids. Mm-hmm. They have high birth rate. And so at one point in time, our church... We elected to start a preschool, and because we said, "Look, this is so. This is going to be a contextually um, intelligible way to connect with LDS families. Yeah, moms. There's a lot of pressure on moms. A lot of young kids. Um, You know, we can we can help them out. We can extend grace and show them love." Um, in a way that scratches where they itch, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, for for many years, we ran a, a preschool a, as a way of saying, "Hey, we're going to try to connect with the with the culture and its felt needs and the realities of what's going on, in, you know, in this setting."
0: Yeah. So here's here's the challenge to each one of us: is to consider how can we, in our specific, very localized, very personal context, how can we understand some best ideas of how to contextualize um, the gospel message and Christian practices, the, the way that we do church, without compromising some of the strong biblical instruction or pattern of the gospel and such. Again, this is the Culture Wise podcast where God's good news meets the Latter-day Saints with wisdom and grace.